This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Welcome back to the uh, second session of our Labour Market Enforcement Conference today. We focused earlier on how big is the problem. Short answer, quite large and quite focused on those um, uh, in some vulnerable groups are most effective. And now we're going to move on, rather than just hand-wringing about there being some suboptimal parts of our labour market, what might we actually do about it? And what are some of the trade-offs about trying to do things about it and where that might give you problems in other areas? So that is the goal of this session. So first of all, you're going to get a quick summary of the recommendations in the report from Lindsay Judge, our research director here, who's one of the co-authors of this and has led the enforcement project over the last four years. And then we've got a great panel coming at different aspects of this from the doing to the writing about to the legislating on it. So you're first of all going to hear from Dr. Patricia Rice, who's a low pay commissioner, so gets the joys of setting the minimum wage uh, each uh, year, who is a senior research fellow at St Anne's College and at the Department of Economics at Oxford, they, um, and has written lots of things in this space prior to being appointed to the low pay commission. And you're going to hear from John Kelly, who's the division director of the Irish Workforce Relations Commission. And you heard in the last session people talking about some quite large reforms happening in the Irish enforcement landscape. And if more and more Britain does need to be paying some attention to things that happen in other countries, there might be some lessons to learn, even though that's become less fashionable in the last 20 years. And then you're going to hear from Matt Warman MP, who was leading the government's Future of Work review and is now leading the APG, APBG's uh, Future of Work. Um, and has done lots of work in this space and thinking in this space. And I should give a heads up that we're going to lose Matt to democracy or voting as it's called which happens just after four so Matt's going to slink off at the panel um, so he's not running away because you ask difficult questions he's just going to vote on water sewage so just be glad you know it's not your life it could also be because you ask difficult questions but he's definitely running away because um, he needs to go and vote so that is the plan they, um, so Lindsay what are we recommending actually happens Thank you very much, Torsten. Um, so Hannah um, took you through um, the, the problem, um, and I'm going to take you through the solution. I hope I can do as much justice to the report as Hannah did in the first session. And what I'm going to do is um, something really simple, which is I'm just going to take you through the five-point plan for change that we spell out at the back end of the report. So I commend you to that for further details. So just to remind you of the key problem that we're seeking to solve here, we have a, a highly fragmented, patchy state enforcement system, public enforcement system, at the moment and we have a lot of workers who, who are who are at the sharp end of, of labour market violations. So what, what should we do about it? Well um, my first chart um, sort of brings this point home so this is this is a kind of reprise of one of the first charts that Hannah showed you. This is showing you um, the scale of um, zero paid holiday entitlement and people reporting they have no pay slip but this time we're breaking it out by by low pay um, workers and, and higher paid workers and you don't need me to read the figures off here I mean again it just brings home that point that there's certain types of workers in the labour market who are particularly suffering when it comes to, to the weak enforcement we have now. But the thing that Hannah didn't tell you about when she talked about um, her chart version of this is that both of these rights are not enforced by any of our state enforcement bodies. So there are certain parts of the labour law um, kind of spectrum where there's actually no state enforcement. It's, it's private only fundamentally. And that informs very much alongside the issues that Hannah flushed out around fragmentation. Our first recommendation, no surprise perhaps that we're suggesting we should indeed
indeed introduce a single enforcement body for labour market enforcement, or at least a leadership body, and that, of course, would take us sort of strongly into line with the practice of many other OECD countries, five of which we highlight in the report. But one of the things we're saying is that that should go further than the government's 2018 proposal, whereby it proposed to bring together HMRC national minimum wage, EAS and the GLLA, and we're suggesting that um, a new single enforcement body should be created that covers all worker rights unless they're reserved to another body to enforce. And by that, we're fundamentally meaning HSC for health and safety and EHRC when it comes to discrimination. So that's our first suggestion. Um, bringing these bodies together and creating a single enforcement body might go some way to sort of tackling the problem that I'm flushing out in this next slide. So what this is showing is um, where the private sector employees say they would go if they were worried about uh, an issue around non-compliance in, in their workplace, if they were going to approach an external body. And, and perhaps no big surprises, the big standout bar here is 60% is, um, of workers saying, at least in the first instance, they wouldn't have a clue where to go. They just wouldn't, they wouldn't there's no kind of brand recognition. And then you can see that, of course, there's, there's groups of workers who say that they would go to union. We've talked about that in the previous section. Um, they'd go to ACAS, Citizens Advice. We've then got 6% saying that they would go to an enforcement body. They didn't necessarily name it, but they, they knew that enforcement bodies existed. And then a, a very small share of workers who are saying that, that in, the, in the case of a problem, they would, they would take individual action. Again, sort of reiterating what we heard previously. Um, and we think that, that a single enforcement body would, would, of course, increase this sort of brand recognition. You'd hope that, you'd hope that, that bar would go up somewhat, but it doesn't um, solve the problem in its entirety. And that feeds into our second recommendation, which is we think that it, the time has come to follow the model that's put forward in the Competitions and uh, Markets Authority, the CMA, and empower firm and worker representatives to make what's called a super complaint. So what is a super complaint? Well, it's a, when a designated body that has standing that is able to pick up on systemic or emerging issues in a particular field, in this case, the labour market, can bring forward that, that question and, and take it to a body that has some kind of enforcement power. So if you can imagine if, if unions or citizens advice, for example, on the worker side, or if, if firm representatives, firm bodies, um, representative bodies, <laughs> We're bringing these issues forward to a single enforcement body. The single enforcement body could, for example, review the, the issues that were, that were flushed out. They could change their policies and practice. And of course, they could report to Parliament and be suggesting that this is an area ripe for regulation. So we talked about um, the gig economy and we talked about worker status in the first panel. Those are two issues that you can imagine could have been picked up by a super complaint 10 years ago, for example, and we wouldn't still be struggling with them now. Um, a single enforcement body, of course, needs good resourcing. This is, um, you might have recognised this chart, we used it in, in the previous session, but it's just such a powerful one, we just have to show it again. Um, so this is showing you again how far um, short of the ILO benchmark the UK um, sits and also just, just how low it is in terms of the ranking. We're 27th out of the 33 OECD countries we put here. And it goes without saying that without, as one of agencies who we, who we interviewed for the report called it boots on the ground, you do, just do have a tough, a tough um, challenge in terms of detection. So no surprise that our next recommendation is that if we want to get serious about deterring non-compliance, this isn't just about penalising compliance when non-compliance when you discover it, it's about, it's about sending a really clear signal to other firms that this is something you shouldn't be trying, um, we need to double the number of labour market inspectors. That, that would get us um, more than half of the way towards that ILO um, benchmark and certainly take us a long way up those, those rankings. 
But increasing deterrence, increasing our capacity to identify non-compliant firms and poor practice in the workplace is one thing, but that isn't going to go the full way to um, deterrence because deterrence fundamentally is, is not just about what it, finding people. It's about well, what, what do you do when you do find firms that aren't playing by the rules. Um, and my next chart sort of takes, takes us through this one. This one's a little complicated, so please be patient with me. But what this is showing, what this chart is showing, and it's taken from one of our previous reports, is how um, the, amount of, um, the amount of penalties that are placed on a firm, the, the fines or the, or the kind of costs to a firm when non-compliance is discovered, interacts with that, with that probability of detection. So fundamentally at the top, let me give you a perfect example. Here we have um, a fine that's been identified by, by H. HMRC and um, has been has been had to pay back the arrears that it's underpaid workers by, but it's been allowed to self-correct, but which means that it hasn't had to pay any kind of financial penalty as a result. And you can see here that what that means is like you know, fundamentally there is there is no incentive to comply with the law. You get caught, you pay the costs. It's the same as you would have you would have suffered if you if you'd um, if you paid in the first place. Um, so, in the absence of a fine, identification is, is, is one thing, but it has no deterrent effect. If we go down the scale, so HMRC, if they catch you and you've underpaid the minimum wage at the moment and, you, and they do penalise you, if you pay promptly, you, you pay a fine of the equivalent of 100% of, of the arrears um, that you were underpaying. And, we, um, and this, um, this chart shows you that that needs to be coupled with a detection rate of 50%. So in other words, one of every two firms that falls into that situation needs to be caught for there to be a meaningful deterrent. Um, and at the maximum penalty that HMRC can impose when underpayment is detected, which is 200%, there needs to be a one in three chance um, that you're caught for, for there to be an incentive to comply. Um, all of which sort of begs the question of well, where, where do we actually sit on this scale? Well, the truth is we, we just don't know. We don't actually know what the, uh, what the real um, detection rate is. It's really difficult to work out. Um, in a previous report, we, oh, sorry, jumped half too far forward. We estimated that the absolute, absolute upper bound in terms of detection for national minimum wage non-compliance um, before COVID was around 13%. And you can see from the chart that that would have to be coupled with a penalty of around 700% um, of the arrears to be an effective deterrent. And that um, model, and sorry for being so painstaking with that one, but that model is what informs our fourth um, um, recommendation, which is um, alongside increasing the number of inspectors, doubling the number of inspectors, we also think we need to double the maximum fine that can be imposed for non-compliance. So that would increase the financial penalty to up to four times. That doesn't necessarily mean it would be four times in every case, but up to four times, so that the agencies have a, have a, a bigger stick to carry, if you like. Um, finally, um, we, we don't think a single enforcement body with, with all these powers is, is a magic bullet. We don't think that's the only thing that needs to be done. We absolutely recognise that there are certain rights that are very complicated in fact or complicated in law. And we do think that there needs to be the employment tribunal system and, and the, the judicial system working alongside and working ideally in harmony um, with, with the SEP. So the final... Um, recommendation we make is, is around the employment tribunal system. We, we know, and again we heard this in the previous panel, we know it doesn't work particularly well for workers. And this is a chart taken from one of our previous reports as well, which was looking at discrimination, which is just showing the reasons why claimants who've made it to an employment tribunal, remember how few make it to that point to begin with, who've made it through to an employment tribunal application, who then settle. And you can see the number one reason that um, workers settle is, is stress, and that's particularly high in these kind of more 
complex cases. Here we're highlighting discrimination. Um, so moving to a single enforcement body would certainly do something in terms of sort of unclogging the system. There should be a lot of cases that are fundamentally probably easier to resolve than an employment tribunal system requires. So there would be backlogs that could be cut by moving to a single enforcement body, but there will still be a need for this system to work well. And that informs our final recommendation, which is we need to strengthen that system. Um, and we need to extend the application times for people to be able to apply. It's currently three months. Um, we think we should extend those application times to six months. And also, critically, we really do need to start getting serious about enforcing the awards that are sometimes awarded by employment tribunal systems too. So let me really quickly summarise. We think we should introduce a single enforcement body that has broader powers than the 2018 proposal. We think that... Um, Different representatives with standing should be allowed to bring a super complaint to that body. We think we need to double the number of inspectors. We need to double the level of fines that are currently um, able to be imposed. And we need to do a lot more to unclog and improve on an employment tribunal system. And this, we think, is a programme for turning rights into reality. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Lindsay. Patricia, what do you think? <laughs> well, um, as Torsten said, I'm a low-pay commissioner. Um, the role of the low-pay commissioners are to set the minimum wage. We don't actually have any formal role in uh, enforcement and compliance, but clearly it's the, the whole question is integral to our work. And so we very much welcome, I think, the research that has been undertaken by the Resolution Foundation. Since 2017, the, the Low Pay Commission has produced a series of standalone compliance and reports which have looked at many of these issues. And the most recent was undertaken, uh, sorry, published in July 22, which dealt with the um, enforcement and compliance in the textiles industry in Leicester and Operation Tacit, which was a concentrated effort by several of the enforcement bodies to um, look at enforcement in Leicester. And a lot of my comments, I think, will, is driven by what we learned from, from that exercise. We've heard a lot in the earlier session about the scale of the problem. It's best estimates is that in April 22, approximately a half a million workers were underpaid. Um, that is a very large area to police, even with lots of additional resources. Um, the other thing I'd like to know is that despite those very large numbers, the HMRC enforcement body receives only about two to 3,000 complaints from workers a year. Um, and we know that, the evidence shows us that um, complaint or enforcement activity that is initiated by an employment complaint is much more effective than ones that are based on a sort of research uh, risk-based assessment. And so I think it is worth asking ourselves, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what can we do to persuade workers to bring more of these complaints to the enforcement bodies. And I think that does have to go hand in hand with a strengthened enforcement body. Uh, some of the things we've already talked about, uh, workers very don't, often don't know they're underpaid. We heard in the earlier session how what very large numbers of them don't have a pay slip, so how can they know they're underpaid, particularly salaried workers? 
there's a, it's clear there's not a great deal of confidence in the existing enforcement bodies. Um, HMRC enforcement process can be slow. 30% um, of cases take more than 240 days to close, and then the workers end up waiting a long time for their arrears. The um, limits, because of t issues around taxpayer confidentiality, there's very little feedback provided to workers during the enforcement process. And in particular, there's a whole issue around feedback not being provided to third parties who may be trying to support the worker through the process. And one of the things the LPC has repeatedly made recommendations about is the need for a better system to enable third parties to um, act on behalf of workers. The other thing we know um, from talking to textile workers is that they're much more likely to share information with people they know and trust who are rooted in the community. And so I think a lot more can be done within the enforcement system to um, encourage and take advantage of those connections. One of the other things, um, I'm waiting for you to get twitchy if I'm going on too I'm long. I'm incredibly still. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things we learnt from textiles is the role of the downstream uh, firms. It, it, in that particular case, the retailers. And frankly, when they, their work was just as important in changing behaviours within the textile industry as the quite intensive enforcement activity that went on under Operation Tacit. When the retailers decided to take a serious interest in compliance within their supply chains, it changed structures and ways of working very quickly. Particularly, we saw things like a reduction, a restriction to the amount of outsourcing going on in the supply chain that made a big difference, um, and a requirement for much better record keeping. I think one of the things that's worth bearing in mind is that the supply chain auditors who went into these businesses could actually work to quite different standards of evidence than are required of the HMRC and the other statutory bodies. They were able to um, work on a more risk-based approach. They didn't have to establish beyond doubt, if you like, there was non-compliance. If there was a high probability of non-compliance, they were able to threaten to withdraw their business. And that made a large difference. So I think within this framework of enforcement, it is important to think about how you can make use of those kinds of relationships, um, the access and the bargaining power that these um, other sort of downstream firms have and how that can be utilised. And my final comment is really about the vulnerability of the workers themselves. Most of the workers we talk to, both in Leicester, but also the workers talk to, we see every year, they're very often in extraordinarily precarious employment positions. They don't have, very often they don't have employment contracts. They're desperate for extra hours of work. They're reliant to get those hours of work on their managers and supervisors. So they're not going to take any action that they think there's any possibility of jeopardizing their employment relation. And Kate earlier in her session talked about, if you like, the most extreme cases of that, the seasonal workers who are basically tied to a single employer and the domestic migrant workers. Um, and a big part, I think, for 
in improving compliance and enforcement in this area is just providing more protection, making these workers less vulnerable. And at a risk of, 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 of a plug, we could start by going back to a 2018 report by the Low Pay Commission called One-Sided Flexibility, where there were a whole a number of very specific recommendations on employment rights, which would do a lot to reduce their vulnerabilities. These are things <coughs> about giving them a right to contract of employment that reflects their normal hours of work, um, to having adequate notice of cancellation of shifts. I mean, it wouldn't be a magic bullet, but I think at Policies like that would help a lot. Very good. <laughs> Finished so suddenly, you kind of surprised me. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I wasn't even starting to pitch it. <laughs> well, now, I'm going to say, I don't want you to miss your vote. So why don't you go next, Matt, in case you have to click off, and then we'll go to Brian. John. That's very kind, um, and it will give you time to talk uh, meaningfully about what's going on in Ireland, which I think is, is really interesting as well. So um, just, just a little bit of background. Uh, I was asked uh, several prime ministers ago by Boris Johnson to do uh, a review uh, more broadly into the future of work, uh, and we uh, divided it into uh, skills, uh, workers' rights, uh, AI, uh, and what we generically called place, which was how is the high street being affected, how is uh, working from home being uh, being uh, needing different legislation. Some of that comes back to workers' rights, but some of it came back to how do we try and uh, reshape the environment in which people work or that people go to work in. Um, and if I'm if I'm honest. Um, ignoring the fact that it was curtailed by uh, various uh, extraneous events around the Prime Minister. Um, actually, the bit that I was not looking forward to wrestling with was things like workers' rights on working from home or, or where should we sit on some of those really complex, knotty issues where there is an obvious business incentive, there's an obvious, work, there's an obvious uh, worker case that COVID had changed, all of that sort of stuff. One of the things that I was really looking forward to doing was what I sort of regarded as the really easy bit, which was to say almost exactly what Lindsay said, which is that there is an incredibly fragmented uh, landscape around the enforcement of workers' rights. I come from a uh, constituency where we have a, a huge Eastern European population largely working in agriculture. Um, we've had intense engagement with the GLAA and, and its, its predecessor body, um, and it's patently obvious that it simply doesn't have the resources to do uh, what it needs uh, to do, and that's just one uh, of the enforcement. This is the flat bit of Link Lincolnshire. This is the. This is, this is not introduced you properly. This, this is this is the very flat bit of Lincolnshire where a, a third of the country's Brussels sprouts come from. My constituency, uh, where uh, some people feel I should apologise for that, but uh, it, it's it's a, it's a source of great employment, which is a very good thing. Um, so uh, one of the the things that. Uh, the review was going to recommend without a, a second thought uh, was a single, a single enforcement body, um, was also to say, um, uh, and this is a sort of, I, I was trying knowingly to ride two, two horses. Uh, one was to say that there should be more resources uh, put into enforcement full stop. Uh, the other was to say, however, that the savings that come from merging the different enforcement bodies into one should be ploughed back into the promotion of awareness of people's uh, rights, which plainly, as, as, we, as we saw from the uh, graphs there, there are, are not 
where they should be. I think if you look at some of the interesting examples, GLA is, is one. Um, the, the BMA, ignoring all, all, the, all, the, all the recent reasons why the BMA has been in the news, um, one of the reasons why the BMA has so much attachment from its members is because it offers a really effective contract checking service that says this is how much your trust should be paying you to, to doctors, um, and very often they are not. And, and, and the BMA is, is a good value for money investment proposition for lots and lots of, uh, lots and lots of medical professionals. Um, that is an exceptional case rather than many of many of the others. Um, so, so, so I was very keen to say that there should be a, a single enforcement body, that that fragmentation was genuinely damaging, that there should be much more uh, emphasis on uh, people knowing about the rights that they already have. That was before I would have hoped to get into what further rights uh, should, should they have. Um, and, and the uh, collapse of the, of the Boris Johnson regime uh, meant that I didn't have the opportunity to. But I do think that the, uh, the resourcing of employment tribunals was very much what we were thinking of as, a, as, a, as an additional stage. What we hadn't got into uh, was the stuff uh, around fines um, really at all. Um, but uh, what did then come up subsequently was, uh, and it's interesting that the vote imminently is, is on uh, sewage because one of the uh, policies that the Liz Trust government introduced was that there should be uh, effectively infinite fines um, on uh, water companies for damaging the environment beyond a certain level. Now, uh, the reason I mention that is because at that point you are effectively saying that a company that does something so bad in that instance would be nationalised. If you are saying to someone that it is, it is, a, it, it is a, a, a level of fine that could go into billions for companies that you know simply do not have that, that is an interesting proposition in itself. And it was, I, I'm not, if I'm honest, 100% certain in my own mind whether that is something that the government was doing knowingly or whether the signal it was seeking to send was that this is such a serious thing that in theory uh, fines could be infinite. But I only mention that because it obviously does, uh, it, it brings the back end of your curve around enforcement uh, in, into, into really uh, sharp focus. Uh, but what I uh, and where where I'll end. What, what what I did find was interesting about this aspect of the review I was doing was simply that no part of the government system came to me and said everything is perfect. We don't want you to change anything. Could you not recommend the status quo? Um, and when I was talking to uh, and very few of them are still in government, but some of them are, are, are around. When I was talking to special advisors, when I was talking to uh, people, people in and around the system, rather than talking to, talking to Torsten and, and others um, out, outside the, the, the actual government system, no one was saying uh, a single enforcement body is a bad idea. No one was saying that better resources uh, is a bad idea. They might not have said we have the, the resources to provide them, but no one thought it was, a, it was a bad idea in principle. So I think this is a hugely welcome report that should, uh, notwithstanding uh, the fact when I was appointed uh, by Boris, Angela Rayner dismissed me as a government lackey, uh, notwithstanding that, uh, I think there is actually genuine political consensus on quite a lot of this stuff. And uh, I suspect there will be uh, some sound and fury around the edges, but in practice, we should be able to unite around a much more coherent system that has much more oomph behind it. And finally, we can definitely learn from what's going on uh, in other countries around the world. Very good. Thank you very much indeed, Matt. There's uh, lots of food for <coughs> thought there, the, um, and food for actual food via yeah. Boston and Skegness. And apologies for walking out. I fully apologise. Now, Someone's actually doing it.
what on earth is going on? You've actually meet, you're actually meeting a Labour inspector today. I've met a Labour yeah, inspector. No, no, no. But this is work. <laughs> we can go for a drink later and have a party, but this is not a social interaction yet. Well, look, um, just good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'd like to congratulate um, the Resolution Foundation for the Thanks, report. Really good. Very interesting. Um, obviously, I have certain constraints about what I can say. Oh, John, don't um, be boring. But uh, so I'm going to confine things to really to the Irish model. But I do have to say that uh, the Gang Masters Licensing Authority, working with them on the Ireland of Ireland, working them internationally, uh, very professional, a very credible organisation, and, and I have the highest respect for them as an organisation. So I suppose when I looked at the report, it's very similar. The proposals are very, very similar to what happened in Ireland in, in 2015. So at that stage, we had basically we had um, five employment bodies. So you had the Labour Court, you had an Equality Tribunal, you had an Employment Appeals Tribunal, you had the Labour Inspectorate, which was under NERA, which also was responsible for information provision, and then you had the Labour Relations Commission, similar to ACAS, on an individual tribunal basis. Um, six websites, two different call centres, 40 different complaint forms. So you, had, you, you certainly had redress shopping where people would be going to different areas. Um, and multiple redress options. Um, so, after it, it obviously it became obvious, I think, to to, to the general uh, public, to the civil service, to the government, that reform was needed, and it resulted in the Workplace Relations Act of two thousand and fifteen, which ended up with one body, the Workplace Relations Commission, which deals with all complaints of first instance, and then our Labour Court, in most instances is the appellant body. So it's, it's a very streamlined, very streamlined um, structure. Um, the, the WRC has as a board which involves employers, employees, a representative from the equality area, um, and then three, re three members who would work in workplace relations uh, and dispute resolution and in equality law. Um, that, that's the, the general teams where people are picked from. It's an advisory board but it does have to approve the work programme for, for the workplace relations every year. Um, what, were, what were, I suppose, the issues that, that were involved in, in bringing them together? One really big issue was the separation of functions between, partic in particularly, labour inspection, which is my, my area, and adjudication, which is uh, basically where an, an individual will bring a complaint before an adjudicator. Um, and we had to be very careful there in terms of uh, having a Chinese wall between those, those, two, those, two, um, those two functions. So we do not share information across that. There are functionally separate bodies within the organisation. Um, also, there would have been certain concerns from the, uh, the adjudication side, from the legal profession about, the, say, the professionalism of adjudicators. Well, we have a good mix now of uh, legal professionals, um, IR experts, uh, HR experts, equality experts within our within our adjudication cohort. The other big challenge is is the I suppose the what always happens when you bring organisations together. It's hard to break down the silos, and it's hard to lose the sort of a we're still NERA or we're still the Labour Relations Commission. But it it has one one way we have done that is we have. We have this, the, the labour inspectorate was always decentralised, five different areas. 
we're, we're bringing the other services of the Workplace Relations Commission to those to those services as well to, to build uh, that cohesion on a, on a, on a decentralised decentralised level. How is that going out of ten? Uh, I would say going quite well, uh, about seven and a half to eight. Yeah, no, and I'm a, I'm a very strict marker, so it could be even better. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, the other thing I think is to manage management of expectations for, for our customers and for our stakeholders is that there is only so much we can do. There's only so many inspections we can do a year. There's only so many adjudications we do a year. We're constrained by our legislation. We're constrained by, and rightly so, and we're constrained by the judiciary in terms of when we bring cases to court. So there's issues like that. So I said that there's a lot of things in common, but there, are, and in particularly some similar issues, that we do have that conundrum around um, people who haven't got permission to work. Part of our, our inspectorate's job is to check whether people have permission to work or not. Um, and sometimes that will involve us to, to actually, I won't go through it, but to actually verify whether someone is, has permission to work or not we have to talk to our, our, our police on Garda Sheikhana. And, and so that, that's part of that. But what we do is, we, our focus is on the employers. We don't prosecute employees. We, we prosecute employers for that. Um, our government, there, there was a legal barrier for people uh, who hadn't got permission because their, 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 um, their, their contract was invalid because of that. But the government have brought in a civil option for people where, where, where people who have been exploited and are owed money that they can go to a civil court and the minister can take that case as well. Now, it's been very slow getting off the ground. I've been very surprised the NGOs haven't jumped on it as much, but they are starting to, to, to see the options of it now. Am I running out of time? No, 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 we're all learning lots. Keep okay. educating us. We also have a regularisation scheme which our Department of Justice brought in just this year, just, just last year. That'll be very interesting because it'll be interesting to see how many people that takes out of that that, that cohort um, um, and all our inspectors um, have had human rights training and also uh, uh, identification of human trafficking training as an organization we are part of the national referral mechanism for, for human trafficking as well um, in terms of being serious about compliance we operate a compliance model um, we're, we're probably not in line with what the recommendations are on that um, and it is it is policy on that because some of our some of our actual instruments we have a compliance notice instrument and a fixed penalty notice instrument, and if we if we use a, a, a compliance notice and we we advise somebody that they have to do something, if they if they do that, well then we can't go any further. Yeah. If they don't do it, they can be prosecuted. Um, and our national minimum under our national minimum wage act, we can prosecute somebody for not having the national minimum wage. But it's up to the judge to make the award arrears award. So, as a labour inspector, including the penalty, in, in, including the penalty. Yeah. So sometimes, for practical purposes, if you have somebody who is owed money for public holidays, for annual leave, for national minimum wage, do you prosecute or do you try to give the money back to them? It, it's it's and it, it is, it, it is a, I suppose an ethical dilemma. You know, and I, I understand where where the recommendation is coming from. But there are, there are practicalities as well. You have, you have to be pragmatic on that too. Um, we do the, public, the publication of prosecutions. One, one thing we do as well is we risk rate. So when our inspections are over, our inspectors will risk rate 
the employers, and that then provides, uh, I suppose, uh, um, I suppose a tank that we can go and take and, and go and do inspections again, and we will keep going back to, to people um, if they're if they're not compliant. Um, and I suppose the other thing I would say is that we have increased our inspectors in the last number of years. We are, we've increased by 10 last year in terms of our inspectors. So our sanction at the moment is, is 70 inspectors. Um, and also our adjudicators, which I didn't really talk about today, um, and they're a very important part of our body. Uh, and they can award, under certain EU legislation, they can award compensation as part of their... their, their, their um, their work and we also are very successful in conciliation which is where we would where our we have conciliators who will work with with um employers with government bodies and up to national level our conciliators actually do the national um public sector uh, agreements as well every year of so it's a very big body we also do advisories where we do training for for employers um, cultural change in... in you got your fingers in all the pies? All the pies, yeah. Right. Very and good. That. Very good, John. Okay. We've all learned a lot there. Thank you very much indeed. The, um, you slightly traumatised me by, at the end by throwing in another five pies. Uh, it was already sounded like quite a lot before we got to that. Right, OK. The... Um, OK, there's a lot to go through there. I thought we should we should briefly... It's been about 15 minutes. Let's do... The single enforcement body is the bit, and Matt was saying, where there's like at least more theoretical cross-party consensus. And then let's move down the degree of sticks involved as we go. Because it's almost easy for people to agree about the institutional change bit, because you can be pro quite aggressive enforcement and like that, and you can be quite pro compliance, compliance. We promise you won't find anybody and still support that. So that's the like bit everyone supports. So what I mean, what's been the least successful thing about moving to a single enforcement body? That's very unfair, but what's getting you the two and a half out of 10. What was hard, or what's hardest? Might be easier for you to answer without upsetting everyone back home. What was the hardest thing? As an, as an institution? Yeah. Um, All that to make effective in terms of protecting people. So I'll give you a concrete example where you think, right? So one of my first ever jobs in the UK Treasury, this is in the dawn of time, we merged our two tax systems, mm. right? So we had the revenue system, inland revenue, which like they walked around with bowler hats, they knocked on doors nicely and asked for a check. If you didn't give it to them, they said, oh, well, I'll see you next year. And then we had the customs people who had a gun <laughs> smashed down the door and were like, where's the VAT? If you don't pay right now, that is what a jail cell looks like, right? Different powers, totally different cultures and like merging them with some like good political wheeze at some point. And poor sods like me then spent years being like, oh God, you can't have your gun anymore. You can't, don't smash down any doors anymore, but you can find somebody like rationalising all the, the hell of rationalising two large bodies was really, really complicated. Yeah. Um, now, probably worth it in the end. I don't know what people think, but the, um, the people who haven't had their doors smashed down are happy. What's been yeah, the hardest? I, I think cultural change within the organisation was, was is a big challenge. Um, I think that the, the bodies that, were, that have, have come into the organisation, their functions haven't really changed. They're very professional. They, they, they've been doing it for a long time. But I think cultural change, um, bringing the cohesion to the, the organisation, and to a certain extent, um, getting the message out there as well, um, particularly to professionals, to, uh, to employer bodies, and to uh, uh, employee bodies. Okay, very good. The, um, now, Lindsay, one thing we have, you didn't have time to tell us a bit about, but which is alongside this report, there's a, we've done five five international case studies of yeah. other countries' enforcement regimes, most of which have single enforcement bodies or something that looks a bit like one. 
Um, tell us a bit about what that showed in terms of things it doesn't solve. So we're obviously in favor of them, right? So the easy thing is everyone's in favor. What are the kind of things that showed us it, that it leaves on the table? Well, I, I think what was really interesting, we, we ran a, a partner workshop where we brought, brought all of our five, five countries together. And some of them are in the room today, I should say. Um, so they might have a better answer to this. And, and at the end of it, um, after everybody had presented about their bodies, which, um, you know, they were all kind of plugged as a single enforcement body. They were all very, very different. Uh, that was one big takeaway is no single enforcement body model exists. There's, there's lots of different arrangements. They all sat there and they said, well, we're all grappling with the same problems. So um, the point I made in the presentation, which is a single enforcement body is not a magic bullet. It is, it is not going to take away these issues of really vulnerable workers. It is not going to take away these issues of, of structural disadvantage in the labour market. It is not going to take away these issues of how do you actually operationalise these, these challenges? How do you, you know... We don't think anyone's going to have enough inspectors to pick up every single mm -hmm. case. You've got to be intelligent. You've got to use data really wisely. Um, but it's just the degree, I think, the degree of problems that we have in the UK are baked because of the fragmentation, because of the under-resourcing, because of the long-standing approach we've taken in terms of compliance that just this kind of set us apart. Very good. One for you. So mm -hmm. the LPC is probably the most famous, <laughs> if not only famous, uh, tripartite body in the UK, right? As in, it's like the back to the 70s bit, but people like it. The, um, and by, so, I mean, it involves unions, it involves employers, and it involves experts, right? The, um, uh, now, how big a what, what are the lessons from that for you about how you run a SEB? Should we be looking to have that as the kind of governance structure, or should we be just running it like we are running the enforcement bodies now, which is it's a normal agency of government, off it goes? What do you think? What are the lessons? I think the lessons for me is that it's it's quite clear that from that sort of social partnership model point that was made earlier, there is a huge amount of agreement on all sides about how one wants to move forward. It's not at all oppositional or confrontational. How that feeds across into an enforcement... Well, it was, well, it was two decades ago. That's true now. Everyone's in favour of a minimum wage these days. But within, but oh, within the low, oh, yes, within the low paid yeah, commission, very I, to each other. Yes. I think we go beyond being polite. Oh, okay. we? All right, all right, we're we've actually that. been right. known to agree with each other. Okay. All oh, right, sorry, sorry, sorry. I think. No, I think it does work very well as a model. I'm, I'm not sure that feeds immediately over into an enforcement body, which is obviously a very different kind of. You need a very kind of different structure than one that's actually setting setting the policy. So it's not yeah. mm -hmm. clear to me there are any lessons to be learned mm -hmm. from that that feeds across. One thing we know in the report is that I don't think any of the enforcement bodies have a workers' representative on anything. Mm -hmm. Not currently. And that might be suboptimal, yeah. is our gentle yeah. nudge. Oh, wait. Why don't you take this one as well? So the, um, okay. you, can you can offer an independent judgment. So Anonymous, very bold of you, whoever this is, <laughs> says, is the modesty of the recommendations, how dare you, a strength or a compromise? Uh, where does this resolution issues fit before enforcement fits into this model? Really good question. So why don't you, as an independent LPC member, do you think these recommendations are mo too modest? Too, too much change? Too little change? Okay, speaking as a, as a member rather than for the body, because yes, we haven't sure. obviously discussed it, um, I, think they, I think they go about the right way. I mean, I think... It's hard to argue against more resources for enforcement, I think. 
Um, it's, it's hard to argue that the current structure of all these different bodies with workers not knowing where to go is an efficient way to enforce it. I think the issue on, on deterrence and increased penalties, I, I personally think there's a case for increased penalties. I would, I would, if you like, to set against that, I think something that was said by Kate Two in the earlier session. Let's not start uh, ranking our Kates. Um, from uh, the Rec. recruitment. Right. Yes, from Rec. Recruiter it, Kate. Recruiter Kate is that one shouldn't underestimate the challenges to employers and in particular smaller employers from uh, compliance. The minimum wage sounds straightforward until you start trying to enforce it on the ground and it's a salaried workers and, and so I think there is a lot of scope still for improved information for those bodies. One of the things we often hear from employers is that the advice and information available to them is just too generic. They need much more specific advice for their sector. So alongside your recommendations, I think there is still a lot of work that can be done to get better information out to employers and workers. That was impressive. About their impressively rights. balanced of you. The, um, uh, right, then why do we... I'm always impressive. Always impressive and imbalanced, <laughs> I should have said, sorry. Yeah. <clears throat> right, um, so one of the issues um, you raised earlier is this yeah. overlap between, there's like solving enforcement by doing enforcement activity, and then there's changing the rules of the game to make some of the problems go away. So like your migration regime, right? But you raised one of them, which is, are there areas where your labour market regulations, by setting the kind of... Uh, setting where power sits and what's going to actually leads to more non-compliance. So for example, uncertainty on hours of yeah. work being used as a management technique, which it definitely is across lots of areas, gives the worker very little power mm. because that's their way of actually engaging with you. Now, John, what, a question that's come here on that from Gail from the Living Wage Foundation, the other I'm going to hopefully bring up here, is you guys are actually ahead of us. So the kind of change that mm. Patricia's talking about was actually introduced, in, and we're going to bring it up in a second. Here you go. For John, in fact, it says it's for you, so it's lucky I'm giving it to you. What impact or changes in business practice have you seen from the Employment Miscellaneous Act, which basically got rid of, didn't quite get rid of zero-hours contracts, but uh, moved away from the, the it being the assumption being it's okay to use that kind of contract. And does that help on the enforcement side or make no difference? From an inspection point of view, it, 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 um, I think it provides more certainty to employees as well. Okay. Um, when, when they start, um, that they don't have, to, that they have certain rights from and certain uh, information given at the, at the very start. Yep. Um, the, and it... In terms of adjudication, um, it, it's it's probably um, much more effective there in terms of the because it simplified it. For you a bit. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there you go. So it's a good idea in general, and it's and that some of those what happened in Ireland is not dissimilar to some of the recommendations mm. the LBC has actually mm. made in the UK, which we obviously fully support as well. The one for you, Lindsay, on fines. So we're moving into the less uh, everybody agrees end of the market, and the more how much do you worry about people getting unfairly getting a large fine, and how much do you worry about? And it's important to say. I think everybody thinks there's trade-offs here. There isn't like a right answer. There's like, where's the balance between uh, some people who you're getting fined who you probably wish you hadn't done, but some workers but providing a deterrence that means that overall workers, right? So there is, there's just a trade-off to choose. So where do you, do you want these, do you want your four times fines to be egregious cases or is everybody getting whacked, Lindsay? Well, I think, I think this question goes back to what Patricia just talked about, which is 
accidental non-compliance. Mm -hmm. we, we, you know, there's a lot of, of um, a lot of commentary that you see around this, which talks about technical breaches, people who've fallen foul of the rules because they, they it was complex or because the rules were were new, and so it would it would take time for them to bed in. And I think our, the view we take in the report is um, there isn't really such a bright line between accidental and deliberate or egregious. Um, and you know, if you think about the example of, of tax legislation, you, you, you set up a firm, and you um, and you know that you're going to get be penalised if you don't if you don't sort out your taxes. So you, you go and get an accountant to help you. Well, if the jeopardy was higher for firms if they felt fell fell foul is that the right way fell foul of the rules on on labor market um rights then then maybe they'd go and get an hr consultant so the cost is about you know where, where the costs sit should the cost sit with the workers because the firms haven't done their homework or or the or the or the law is complicated or should that that sit with the firm and you know there there is a careful balance and i should say well, there is no nothing we say in the report that doesn't say that we don't think compliance activities Brilliant. by by firms is uh, by the enforcement bodies is really important and in fact the the case we make is that the more compliance that the enforcement bodies do, the harder they can come down on non-compliance when they discover it, because that means that there's even less excuse that it was, that it was accidental. Great. Now, we're going to bring up a poll. So again, you have to go on Slido to vote. Hashtag workers rights. There's no chart this time, so we're not going to have like complicated lives. So basically, what do you think would make most difference? This is another version of saying if you can get one thing done, which is the thing you want done. There's the five recommendations that Lindsay set out from the report. And then because we're an open liberal organisation, we also let you vote for none of these will make any difference at all at the bottom. But just think about how that's going to make people feel if you vote for that. Okay? Right. So while you're all voting on that, I want to go back just to, to a big picture question because we're going to wrap up after I bring up the results of the uh, poll for you guys, which is... A lot of what we're wrestling with is we're talking about institutions and we're talking about bits of regulation and, and I think, but a kind of semi, like the, the underpinning philosophy, which is whose job is it to make sure in labour rights are enforced? Is it the individual's job? To, to the onus on them to bring the case? Usually then, there's two overlapping things. There's individual versus collective action required to solve it, okay? And then there's um, judicial versus regulatory adjudication of that and normally the individual leads to the uh, in the UK the individual takes us down the uh, judicial route employment programs in the UK and the collective can do either but often goes to the um, through the regulatory route the um, i.e there's often more than one person underpaid mm. on the minimum wage when that's coming through and one of the things the report is trying to say and this isn't clear cut but I'm trying to simplify is a bit more collective bit less individual because you can't rely on low, low earners being able to go through a big judicial process because they don't factually they don't and even if you think they are going to they're not going to go through that process the um, and anyone that's met an employment tribunal will tell you that and even when they got hugely better they're still not going to go through the employment tribunal system uh, there's a second thing which is goes to what you were saying, which is role of the adjudicators within a regulatory function, i.e. other people that can, without a big court process, get to a basic right answer versus what are the cases. Now, the, Lindsay, why don't you say what the report comes out on the balance there? And maybe we should talk a bit about discrimination because we haven't touched on that much here. 
and then let's get your guys' views on those, that philosophy, and then we'll get the poll results. Yeah, so I mean, as I said, um, the report is, is recommending we move to a single enforcement body, um, which would cover all worker rights except those that are reserved to others. And the two areas that we particularly point out that we think should be reserved are health and safety, because we think that's a very specialist and very technical area, but also um, discrimination. And the reason we, we point to discrimination is because we think that's, that's a very complicated area of law. It's often very kind of fine, balanced questions of fact. And we think that those, that, that, that's, an, that's a type of worker's right that when it's violated, there, there, it needs to be adjudicated on. It needs to be considered in a kind of judicial context. And, and you can think of other um, rights as well that, that perhaps um, that, that same sort of mechanism would apply to for unfair dismissal is a really good one or, or really complex issues perhaps around worker status would be another example. Very good. Okay. John Wadjian, what's your takeaway on individual versus collective versus your brilliant adjudicator versus <laughs> the people in wigs? Well, they haven't got wigs anymore in Ireland, but used to have wigs. It, it's, a very, it's a very hard question to answer, really. Um, Life's hard, John. Come on. Life is hard, yes. Um, like, certainly the state has, has, has a major obligation to provide, to, to, and it carries out that obligation providing laws, providing methods of redress. Um, but I think where the, where the gap is, is between the individual and the redress. And that's, I think that's where the gap is. And that's where, uh, where I think not just the state, not just the individual, but um, the collective has to be involved in there, I think, as well, through NGOs, um, through different, different um, organisations, employer bodies, uh, employee bodies, uh, uh, equality bodies, in in that in that sphere now how can you how can you um you depend a lot on goodwill and on on um on um, organizations to step in there and how can they be how can they be funded how, how can they be supported as well yeah and that is important because of the point you made right at the beginning on ideally you've got an employer employee coming forward to raise an mm. e to, to inform an issue so that you're not an, a regulator just starting from the outside because yeah. then you're more likely to make success and that does require bodies that can reach vulnerable groups which famously the state is not the best at right Patricia last word to you on approach I, I think I very much support what what John said I need a collective approach but that for that collective approach to be effective you need the individuals to have uh, confidence in it and for many of those individuals, they need the support of third-party organisations such as trade unions and local bodies. Um, and it's that real sort of getting third parties involved, I think, that we need to think much more about within the enforcement Great. system. Let's bring up the results of the poll. And then I've got one last question to wrap up for you all, and we're going to move to our last session. Look how consensual you all are. You all want the thing that supposedly all the parties want anyway. <laughs> they, um, and then you want some inspectors. There you go, John. More staff. More staff. More staff. That's what we need. Yeah. Get them on the ground. I, you know, I think that more staff would be a good start. I, if it helps, I think those two are probably the things that are probably most likely. They're like feasibly going to happen. And you can all ask mm. Angela Rainey in a second if they're going to happen uh, or not. Right. Let's, let's go with that. And then just closing words to our um, panel before we move to our last session, which is... Um, if we're back here in five years' time, will anything have changed on enforcement in the UK? Or will it look pretty much the same, which is we've overall very proud of our flexible labour market for some reason. I don't know why we think a lack of enforcement is the same thing as being a flexible labour market, slightly ignoring the fact that it's a separate issue, um, and we'll still be here. Uh, or do you think something will change? John, you can do it from an outsider's, and I won't hold you to it, and you don't have to mention what's going to happen in Ireland. The, um, so, Patricia, is anything going to change? 
I put some probability. That's uh, bold of you. Some. Bold, some positive probability on moving towards a single enforcement body. 60%? Come on. 50. 50, all right, okay. Right, John, okay, let's make it really concrete. Is Britain going to have a, is Britain going to follow John and have a single enforcement body? I always wanted to say this near Westminster. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't possibly answer that. Oh, okay, right, right. <laughs> Very good. I mean, we're all basically play acting bad scenes from bad comedies from a long time ago. You can I'd, answer I'd, that. I'd just like to, I'd like to just acknowledge my colleagues from the University go, of Limerick go. who um, contributed to the, to the report. Let's give them a clap, everyone. Up there. Well done, colleagues. Lindsay, then you get final word. 50% up or down from there? We wrote a report about it and we're in the business of impact, so I have to go higher than that, I'm afraid. On message. <laughs> right, okay. The leaving like, conclusion from this session is greater than 50% chance of a single enforcement body existing in five years. There is no way the Resolution Foundation won't have another session on enforcement around that time. So you can all come back. We'll all look a bit greyer, or in my case, bolder, and then we can find out whether Lindsay or Patricia was right. So can we thank our panel? Thank you all for your questions. We're going to scoot these guys out. Yep. Someone's going to rearrange the chairs in whatever format that needs to happen. And then we're going to get going in our last session. And then you can use I promise. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.